Well, this puzzling gospel from Luke, and it is puzzling. The more you read it, the more puzzling it gets. This puzzling gospel from the Luke about the dishonest manager, I think, is about being wise, specifically about being a wise disciple. Now, there's quite a bit of material in the Bible about being wise. Wisdom is important, but actually secondary, I think, to the principal message of the Bible, which is, first and foremost, a revelation, a story about who God is, about God's great desire to live in joyful, peaceful, and even intimate relationship with people. We, we sung that wonderful verse in the hymn, um, ponder anew what the Almighty can do, who in his love doth befriend thee. This God who wants to be our friend. So the lengths he goes to secure that relationship with us and ultimately to restore it through Jesus, his son. And in fact, the parable that came right before this one that we heard about the dishonest manager was about the prodigal son, which of course is really about a prodigal father, a seemingly crazy father who gives a huge portion of everything he has to his very greedy son, who then after blowing his father off and basically um, frittering everything away, finally comes back, really just in hope of self-preservation. And then again, that crazy father runs toward him, embraces him, and restores him in every way to the status of his beloved. Because that crazy father, like our heavenly father, loves, loves, loves his independently-minded herd of cats, people, which is us. And he will go to absurd lengths to bring us back into relationship with him. And that, of course, is the good news of grace, of God's grace. And I believe that is the principal revelation of the Bible. But as I said, the Bible also teaches us about being wise, which is also, of course, a very loving gift. I mean, it's a little bit like if you uh, gave a car to your freshman heading off to college, you would presumably also tell your freshman how they might want to check the oil and make sure that the tire pressure was right and, you know, learn how to interpret those warning signs, you know, that flash on the dashboard and to pay attention to them. That would also be part of the loving gift. Wisdom in the Bible teaches us how to respond to the great gift of grace and love which God offers us freely. Back to the parable from this morning about the dishonest manager, which is confusing. At first glance, we wonder why Jesus seems to be commending uh, a dishonest person and his dishonest deed. And there are different ways that this perplexing bit has been dealt with by interpreters. But for today, I want to focus on what I'll sum up as crisis recognition and appropriate response. Crisis recognition and appropriate response. I want to focus on that angle because 
Jesus often warns Israel, the religious leaders particularly, that there is a crisis, that they're going the wrong way, that the time is running out, and that they need to change direction. They need to respond appropriately, earnestly, drastically. And from our earlier Amos reading, we're reminded that one of the symptoms of falling out of relationship with God was a systemic, callous regard, disregard and ill-treatment of the poor and the needy. So money, finance, systemic, all tied into disregard and falling out of relationship with God. So in this story, a manager who has been entrusted with financial authority to collect debts faces a crisis. He is visited by his boss. And his boss accuses him of wasting his property. And since the manager doesn't argue with the accusation, we assume it's true. So what does he do? How does he respond? Well, he quickly goes to all those who owe his boss and he gives them a big break on their bill. Which of course means that they are now kind of in debt to the manager and they become quite favorably disposed towards him, which is convenient because he's now out of a job and he needs friends. And of course, the boss won't look very good if he goes around after him and says, no, actually, I never said he could do that. Yeah, I, I actually want you to give me the money. It was a very creative, shrewd response. And no doubt it was self-interested on the manager's part. But the point is, I think, he recognized the crisis and he came up with the most creative, intelligent, daring response that he could imagine, and then he did it as though his life depended on it. And now we move into sort of a bit of interpretation within the parable itself. This is something that the boss says, but we can tell by this interpretation we're going out of strictly financial situation to something that has more spiritual meaning. The boss commends the manager. And he contrasts his shrewd response to the apparently not very wise, not very creative, and not energetic response of the children of light. Who are the children of light? Well, it's a Jewish phrase that we see used in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And it means those who know God. But in this case, it might actually mean the people who think of themselves as knowing God are the children of light. So we've moved from just a financial situation to a spiritual situation, not just a steward of money, a steward of something spiritual. So Jesus is telling a parable to his disciples about what it means to be a steward of God's love and mercy and forgiveness. And he's criticizing the way those people who consider themselves God followers, perhaps the Pharisees especially, how they're responding to the gift of this love and commitment and forgiveness. Instead of sharing it, 
instead of using their creativity and daring and boldness and money as though their livelihood depended on it, they're being stingy and careful and hyper-rule-oriented. They're actually creating obstacles to people experiencing God's love and friendship and mercy. Instead of using their money, their time, their talent, making friends for God, they were insulating themselves, clinging to every ounce of social status that their religious role provided, storing up personal treasure, so wanting to preserve safely what they had that they forgot about the need to share it. And it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, you know, Biblical scholars all sort of say, oh, I think this was a parable that Jesus told, and I think this wasn't one that Jesus told. But everybody says, this is one that he told. Because it's so weird. Nobody would think it up. I mean, he's outlandish. He is praising a bad person. Because he wants to heighten that contrast between the self-righteous attitude of the Pharisees, which is so toxic, to the daring of this person. To point out the seemingly reckless nature of a right response to the grace of God. God doesn't want tidy, prissy, stingy, respectable response. He wants a response that dives in, that risks, that invests in loving and welcoming and befriending and giving. Certainly giving. God, I'm quite sure, is in favor of reckless giving to the poor and needy. So I want actually to tell a story in conclusion. Uh, it is a legend uh, about Thomas the Apostle. And uh, it is widely believed that Thomas the Apostle traveled east after the resurrection to share the gospel in India. And actually, when I was in Boston, I was uh, at uh, Boston College taking a course, I met a Christian from the Palayur Mar Toma Church in India, which traces uh, its identity from the Apostle Thomas. So there is this kind of colorful legend about the Apostle, which I would like to share in closing. According to the legend, there was a king Gondophorus, who heard about a carpenter who had come from Jerusalem to his region, and his name was Thomas. And the king was in need of somebody to build a palace for him, so he asks, Thomas, would you be able to build me a palace? And Thomas assures him, yes, I can, of course. So they discuss the plans and the site, and then the king goes away while the project is undertaken. And Thomas basically sends reports of progress, etc., and asks for payments periodically. <clears throat> well, eventually the king returns, only to discover that no work has been done on his palace. And he asks around, and he finds out that Thomas has been taking the money and giving it away to the poor. Now, he's been telling everybody that this money is the king's. And the gift that they're receiving is from Gondophorus. But you know what? 
The king was still absolutely furious, and he had Thomas put in chains. <clears throat> but before he decided on exactly how he was going to execute Thomas, Gondophorus's brother, Gad, dies, and he goes to heaven. And the angels are showing him the various dwelling places, and he looks around, and he sees this one stunning palace. And he says, I'd kind of like to, I'd like to live there. And the angel says, oh, I'm so sorry. He says, you can't live there because the apostle Thomas is building that, especially for your brother, Gondophorus. And Gad says, and remember, this is a legend. This is not in the Bible. Uh, Gad says, well, can I, can I go back and visit my brother? So the angel says, of course, and it's arranged, and he appears to his brother in a dream and explains uh, Gondophorus, could you let me stay in your palace that Thomas is building for you in eternity in heaven? And Gondophorus is shocked. And he asks for Thomas to be released. I mean, isn't it amazing that Thomas would have been building him that palace while he was yet so estranged from God? Gondophorus didn't know the Lord, but Thomas was building him a palace. Of course, we know that Jesus died for us while we were yet dead in our sins. So Gondophorus asks for Thomas to pray for him, and he does, and this is a part of that prayer. I love it. He says, Thomas says, Thou art he, Lord, who in all things showest compassion and mercy to men. For men and women, through the error that is in them, have overlooked thee but thou has not overlooked them. Once again, this theme of reckless seasoning of the great project of making friends, God's recklessness in making friends with us, what he invests in that friendship before we even pay any attention. And of course, Jesus says that to his disciples, doesn't he? He says, um, I no longer call you servants, because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. So, friends, let us invest in reckless friendship. Reckless friendship, as though our very lives depend on it. We use our creativity, our charm, our wealth, our intelligence, whatever we have in this project of making friends for God. Amen.